0: of None with Clifford Hudson, the podcast where we discover how jack-of-all-trades can still reach the top. It's time to embrace your wide variety of interests and turn down the prevailing pressure to spend all of your time becoming an expert. The greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery, and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Now, on to today's conversation.
1: Welcome to my podcast, Master of None. This is Clifford Hudson. Today we're going to be talking about a concept mentioned in my book, Master of None How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. The concept of innovation, and that innovation is not a luxury. In my oversight of the growth of Sonic for 23 years as CEO of that company, My continuing objective was to grow profitability for our operators and in turn convince them to reinvest that profitability in new growth. And then beyond that, growth beget more growth. I've often wondered about executives in a setting of a governmental entity or a public institution and how they think about innovation and particularly how they do so with more limited resources or with the challenge of working through larger governmental structures in order to achieve that innovation. My guest today, Dr. Juliette Garcia, is one such executive who has spent years implementing innovation upon innovation upon innovation, all of it within a public setting, all of it at a governmental institution with all its limitation of resources and administrative challenges. I think you'll find her story quite unique and very impressive. I look forward to spending this time with you, with Dr. Juliet Garcia. Juliette, how are you?
2: I'm well, thank
1: you, Cliff. Good. It's great to be with you today, and I appreciate you uh, uh, joining in on the call. It's my pleasure. Well, spend a few minutes talking if you don't mind. Uh, I mentioned earlier about growing up in Brownsville. I had the Uh, experience, as I mentioned to you separately, but uh, having the opportunity to grow an institution in a uh, a community in which I grew up, but you were born in Brownsville and educated in Brownsville public schools. I'm particularly intrigued by the fact that uh, when you finish high school at the young age of 16, you spent your first year in college at Texas Southmost College, and that must have, uh, ultimately in your life, that must have been a uh, exceptional experience, but uh, tell me a little bit about uh, growing up in Brownsville and uh, before going off to college.
2: Well, Brownsville is a, you know, is on the border next to to Matamoros, which is the southernmost tip of the state of Texas and of the continental United States. I think Florida Keys might be a little further south if you count them, but otherwise we are we are the southernmost tip, and so we grew up in a in a way straddling the Mexican U.S. border in a most wonderful way. So you have family on both sides of the border. You learn, of course, both languages uh, concurrently. You learn how to change pesos into dollars, uh, mm-hmm. kilometers into miles, um, inches, you know, and every every kind of shift that you would imagine here is is done automatically by children. And mm-hmm. so you live in a wonderful environment that Allows you to kind of stretch the edges of two cultures and two languages, and it's it's just a very beautiful and it was a very beautiful place to grow up when I was a
1: kid. And your and your parents represented that same uh, hybrid background. I, I seem to recall your father Mexican, your your mother American. Uh, is that correct?
2: Yes, my father was born actually in in Monterrey, Mexico, and came uh, to the U.S. with his uh, parents during. Uh, the Mexican Revolution, and so, but grew up here. Then started school in me- in Mexico, and then and then came to school here. Perfectly uh, bilingual um, by the time he finished high school. As a matter of fact, I l- I learned later on that that uh, one of his claim to fame was that he had written a poem in Spanish in the high school uh, yearbook. Uh, so that was by Américo Paredes uh, is the one who told me he was a famous uh, poet himself. My mother grew up in Harlingen, Texas, which is just about 30 miles from here. There, uh, it was a little tougher for a Mexican American girl, even though her family was a pioneer family. Her father was a, a merchant. First mercantile store in downtown Harlingen mm. uh, was started by my grandfather. But still, the Mexicans had to live on the wrong side of the tracks. But my mother ended up becoming salutatorian of her high school graduating class mm. and was only one of two Latinas in that class. So we had good. Roots to uh, guide us. That's
1: that's delightful. I'm uh, pleased and impressed that uh, you were a product of the Brownsville Public Schools, as uh, I'm a product of the public schools as well, but it must have been, uh, we'll come back to this later, when I think about you finishing high school and then uh, doing your freshman year at, at what was then Texas Southmost College, uh, what an amazing uh, a full circle it must have been years later to come back To uh, Brownsville to begin teaching there. Talk a little bit about your your path. Uh, I think you you left Brownsville for a number of years to pursue uh, education, and I suppose also to pursue uh, a young marriage. How long were you gone from Brownsville, and was it your thought that you would uh, always your thought that you might return there?
2: I, I did. I wanted to leave. You know, like most kids, ready to to fly and try things out and know the world, and so. I convinced my father after one year at Texas Southmost that I was ready to leave. And uh, so I went off to San Marcos, which is about, you know, 30 miles south of Austin, Texas. He did not want me to go to UT Austin. He thought it was too big. And so uh, I got permission to go to what was then Southwest Texas State University, now Texas State University. I loved it. I loved every minute of being in a dorm and and staying out late, you know, we were, I was in debate uh, and I was in drama. And so we always had reason to stay out late. And I joined the debate squad, loved every minute of that. As a matter of fact, I was was in the men's team. I don't think I had told you this before. I was on the men's uh, team uh, for debate, not because my voice is low, (laughs) but because um, in those days, silly as it sounds now, if you were a mixed team, if you had a boy and a girl, on a team, you only could debate other men. And I had a mm. young man as a partner. So mm. I learned to debate growing up with two brothers and a father. Mm. And then mm. I learned to debate men at at the university level. It was the best preparation I could have <laughs> had for the life that I ended up having uh, to lead.
1: <laughs> That's great. So your marriage took you to uh, Houston, uh, if I recall correctly. Uh, where you studied uh, for your bachelor's and master's degree at the University of Houston.
2: Yes. Houston was the place to get to, to get jobs. You know, that was Houston was growing very rapidly. Um, this was in the um, 1970s. I think a thousand families or something like that were moving into Houston at the time. So mm-hmm. my husband said, um, that's where I can get a job So to support you while you go to school, because mm-hmm. San Matkos was not going to be the place to do that. So we moved to, we married, and uh, I, I finished finals on a Thursday. Got married on a Saturday. Started classes on a Monday uh, mm. at University of Houston. No, no honeymoon. Mm. <laughs> mm. But my my husband got a job, and and um, we bought a little house. Uh, and And it was a it was a wonderful and difficult time all at once. We all know what those first years are like in a marriage. Right. Um, but uh, but Houston uh, was a, a big place for us. It was really the, the big city uh, and yeah. still is.
1: So when was it that, was it a job opportunity to uh, teach um, uh, in the Valley that uh, took you back there or uh, so you, you had finished, you had finished your bachelor's and master's degrees and, uh, and then went back to Brownsville teaching if I recall correctly, not at Texas Southmost College but uh, perhaps at another nearby school for some period of time. I, is that is that correct? Uh,
2: I Yes. I had finished the bachelor's and master's and I'd had two babies in between mm. degrees. And so it was, we had always known that we would come back home. It was, mm. my father was here. Our mother had died when we were very young. And so I had always felt that my father, I was my responsibility to come home and and be with my father and although he didn't think i needed to be taking care of him <laughs> i mm-hmm. did and mm-hmm. so it was a very natural thing for us to when i finished the master's degree to move home and i had a job uh, offered to me at uh, what was then pan american university about 60 miles from brownsville so uh, you know jobs were hard to get and i i took it and commuted every day Sixty miles one way, sixty miles mm. back every day, mm, which was my. not a not a good way to work and balance the responsibilities of having two small babies. Right,
1: right. So eventually, a position opened up in Brownsville at Texas Southmost College, and you became a uh, professor there on there on the staff. Texas Southmost at that time just kind of set the stage for the listener um, was still a junior college, uh, if I have that correct. Though it started in. In the 1920s, uh, and may have been called at that time the Junior College of the Rio Grande Valley. The name did evolve over time, and at the time that you began teaching there in the 70s, it was Texas Southwest College, but still a two-year junior college. I, I recall in in uh, talking to you and and reviewing the back your background that it was a few years before you became a dean, and of course, uh, number of years still before. You became president of Texas Southmost College. Did you have in your mind that when you started teaching there that uh, you ultimately wanted to get into um, a more of an executive position or is that something that evolved over time?
2: It, uh, it evolved. I started teaching. I had a master's degree, remember? And so I started teaching um, introduction to public speaking and persuasion. And, and um, secretly, I wondered, could I do what I was teaching? Could I persuade people to get things done? Could I, through advocacy, you know, move mountains? And uh, so I always wondered about that. And um, so after a couple of years of teaching, I've I found an opportunity on the bulletin board of the faculty study um, to apply for a Ford Foundation fellowship. Showed it to my husband, and he said, "Well, let's try it if you want to, and see what happens." So I got, luckily, uh, after a, a very complicated. Process of competition, I was awarded the fellowship, which meant that Ford Foundation was trying to help minority students get the doctorates and become then uh, the next generation of leaders. So, having had now the money to go, my husband and I, um, I applied to UT Austin, got in barely, got in, talked my way in. First <laughs> advocacy was to <laughs> was to get <laughs> myself in, and then uh, we all we moved to married student housing left my mm. father again, and and my husband found a new job, and we were on track now uh, at UT Austin to work on the doctorate.
1: Yeah, and what a wonderful story, and another life connecting up story to uh, receive yes. that benefit from the Ford Foundation, and then years later go on the Board of Trustees as well. It's a Unbel-
2: uh, dream, it's a, yes. Yeah, a
1: great, a great story. So you would have returned to uh, Brownsville then, sounds like in the late 70s, become dean of the college in 1980 and then president of the college in 1986 Uh, when you became president you were the first Mexican-American woman to head a U.S. college or university on the one hand that sounds so recent to think that you you were in that first status did that occur to you at that time was that well known at the time or is that something that was uh more documented later that you you held that unique status
2: yeah none of us knew at the time that 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 we had just crossed a threshold we we did not understand that. It was some reporter later on years later that that kind of did some research to discover that that had been the case but But I want to tell you that I had applied earlier for the presidency, and I had done so as a lark, and I talk about it now as having to raise your hand you know when when you want more than what you've got at that moment, when you know you can do more. I was I would just come back from Austin that that with a doctorate and I thought I was hot stuff. You know, I thought I am so brilliant. You all just don't know what I could do for you. (laughs) Nobody else knew either. So I had applied for the presidency, actually, uh, when I was about 28 and, of course, uh, didn't get in, but got into the pool of a finalist. Well, mm. probably because they needed a woman in the pool. But mm. I, so I interviewed and of course I didn't get it, but the president that did get it said, I think in his head, this gal's gonna cause me problems. <laughs> and so he, ga- he gave me a job out of the classroom. Yeah. And uh, and that's what started my my experience gathering in administration. And so after that position, then I became academic dean. Then when he left, the presidency was open and I was prepared then to apply. So you got to raise your hand.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I suspect by that point perceived differently because you'd already gone through the process, already been considered uh, being part of a reduced pool, et cetera, and then moved into an administrative position. So, uh, you know, yay for you that you you perceived that you you went through that when you uh, became president, then Texas Southmost. And I really want to kind of focus on this transition because to to me, this is one of the, there are many remarkable aspects to your story, but from an institutional standpoint, I I find this, you know, one of the most remarkable elements was what became of that institution during your tenure uh, in Brownsville. But it it was still uh, a two-year junior college at the time you became president, correct? It was. And uh, yet just, just five or six years later, formed this relationship and, and became a joint venture sort of way, University of Texas at Brownsville, just five or six years later, there's a couple of things I'd like to focus on there. But the first thing that would be interesting uh, for our listeners here, I think is how did that process occur to go from now, uh, if, if, the, or if the college began in 1926, so we're now at 1986, so 60 years later, after 60 years of being a junior college in just another six years, it becomes, in a joint venture sort of way, if I could use that term, um, a, a, a part of University of Texas um, at Brownsville. So, h- how did that occur? And then, I'll, then I want to talk to you a little bit about some uh, resource sharing that it strikes me that it was another evolution over time. But, so your thoughts there?
2: Well, you know, I was then president of this little community college in the southern tip of the border, and the whole world was anticipating. The turn of the century, and so there was a lot of discussion throughout the country about what kind of jobs are we going to have to prepare our students for at the turn of the century, and and everything I read and and at whatever meeting I went to, they they were talking about we need more we need our our students to have uh, more than an associate degree you're going to have to have at the minimum a bachelor's degree, and here I was. Um, uh, leading this, you know, kind of massive group of kids toward an associate degree, associate in arts or associate in applied sciences. And I felt somehow at some point in those discussions that I was, I was the Pied Piper leading them in the wrong direction. And that somehow I needed to create opportunities for them to get the bachelor's degrees, master's degrees go to medical school, go to law school, engineering, whatever it was. So we had an upper level branch on our campus of that same university that I, I started teaching at earlier, Pan American University. And Pan, Am, during those five years, had already joined the UT system, University of Texas system. So we thought, well, what if, I mean, this is a wild thought, right? What if we could just build a university on top of the community college And the the term outsourcing came up a couple of times. Why don't we just contract with the university? We've got a campus here already. We've got faculty, we've got a library. Why don't, and we have lots of students and fast growing population faster than the state of Texas. So the need was great. Resources were very slim. Peso had devalued in Mexico. Price of oil had plummeted in Texas. So there were no resources available to grow. So we said, so what's the most, what's the thriftiest way of growing opportunity without money. And we said better use of scarce resources was the answer. So how do you do that? Well, you share resources and you share each other's strengths. And so we we said, then what, you know, how far could we take this? And what ended up, I think being a very important was we said, we'll partner, but we need to be partnering with another autonomous entity. And we didn't want to be the branch of the branch of the branch, right? right. We wanted, right. To, we wanted a, a part. So we said we, we must form a new university called University of Texas at Brownsville yeah. so that we're not the third rung down. And if we could get that and then we could form a partnership between the college and the university, each of us specialize in what we were specialized in and, and creating then this new kind of entity. So that was the that was the, the notion.
1: But Juliet, I seem to recall that the the distinction of where where those resources can come from. So uh, on the one hand, uh, very clever thinking about how you could leverage some of the things that were already there, and uh, uh, have your own university, University of Brownsville. But with one of the elements of the short resources all, did have to do, my impression, with physical facilities. But your your junior college. If I recall correctly, was uh, funded almost as an extension of your public school system, and to the extent that, in other words, it was grade thirteen and fourteen for students that were that were in the Brownsville public school system, and to the extent that the junior college would look for capital improvements, so physical facilities, uh, new construction improvements, et cetera, it looked to the school district to fund those, and uh, uh, is my impression. And so, in a way, they partnership that you must have looked to over time, which I find very clever, would have been that the junior college setup, the local ad valorem tax, as some states would uh, consider it, would be the source of your physical facilities, whereas the university system might be the source of your resources to provide instruction or the operating resources. Do I, do I have that correct in that, in yeah, that separation? Well,
2: Yes, the, the it is true that most in those days called junior colleges, the term community college hadn't really been invented yet. It right. was just junior colleges, which means they were formed to offer the first two years of the academic uh, degree, freshman and sophomore year. Those grew out of school districts, um, as you said, as the 13th year uh, of school. But eventually they broke off and ours had broken off and was separate by that time. So mm. Texas Southmost College had its own taxing district. And it was it was it it was greater than Brownsville. It included adjacent cities. So South Padre Island was part of our taxing district, for example, I which see. is very okay. nice for us. Yeah. And and um and so it was another small town called Los Fresnos. And so we had our own ad valorem taxing district. We had our own maintenance and operations tax. And then we could uh, provide what we could ask the voters to vote themselves also a new tax to build uh, buildings, which we had done the first year I was president we asked the voters at our local valorem taxing district, which is not a smart thing to do by the way, but we survived it. We asked them to double their tax rate so we could wow. grow wow. The general obligation bond they had never passed a general obligation bond they had simply been building on the backs of students. They would charge right. a student fee to build a new library, for example. Right. Uh, right, And we said, no, 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 you know, the community benefits from this in total. So, so you should help build it. And right. so we convinced them they, they bought into it. So, so they were already now vested in the growth that needed to happen. If we were going to um, keep pace with the, with the rest of the country, remember right. Brownsville is still uh in many ways uh, uh, one of the poorest communities in the United States we're always uh, Cameron County uh, where we reside and Hidalgo County are always on the list as, as the, the top two poorest communities. Mm. so you can't mm. you can't tax people for your long-term revenue stream mm. there's no money not enough money there. there's not enough industry there we needed to build the base and so Once we had already done the bond issue locally, we knew we had to look outside of ourselves for additional revenue. That's Mm -hmm. why we looked to UT, because we knew they had sources of revenue that we could never imagine.
1: Right. So not to jump ahead too much, but just to try to find a quantifiable way to measure the transition that then took place over the next, uh, let's just say, 25 years from 91 or so as you made those arrangements with the University of Texas to, uh, to begin the University of Texas at Brownsville until your retirement in, uh, from the position in 2014. What was the student count? It's one way to look at it. You, you probably have other quantitative measures and, I, and I, undoubtedly there are enormous qualitative measures as well. But what was the student count in, uh, let's say in 1986 when you became president and then the student population in total uh, when you re- retired in, in 2014.
2: We started out at the college uh, when when uh, this um, partnership began. I think we were at about 6,000 students, which is a good size com- uh, junior college. Yeah, for
1: a junior a community college.
2: college. But by the end of the time that the partnership had been installed and, and been operational for 20 years we had a, almost 15,000 students. Mm, mm, so it, it mm. had it had more than double. More than more than doubled. Um, yeah. But but beyond that, then we started out with 50 acres. Uh, we had been able to acquire um, a total of over 350 acres. Mm. And the number of graduates, which was really the compelling, you know, one thing is to build the infrastructure. And that uh, buy the the land, build the buildings, hire the faculty, build the academic programs, and it right. 's quite another to get people through that that process and have them graduate the 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 real measure in my head was whether it worked or not was that we had graduated during the time that that I was president at Utb tSC We graduated forty thousand students mm. now you mm. change a community when you infiltrate a community with smarter people, right? At all right. levels. Because we kept offering the associate degree. That was the magic of this was you, you could stop out after two years, but, but all those hours never were never uh, in question in terms of transfer. There was no transfer. We eliminated all of those traditional barriers for students. When they transfer from a community college to a university, there was no transfer. We were all one and the same. So we counted everything. So what would change the, dramatically was that students had a longer view, a longer vista for, for their career. They would come to us often thinking, I want to be an auto mechanic. I want to fix cars. I want to be a respiratory therapist. I want to be an EMT, all two-year associate degrees. But once there, they thought, wait a minute, if I can do this, why not be an engineer? Why not be uh, an RN? Why not go to law school? Why not go to, you know? So, so it cha- being in, on a campus that allowed you to fluidly move through the process to a bachelor's degree and a master's, and, do, and doing it under the rubric of University of Texas, which had an awful lot of cachet, as you might imagine, right? Uh, just changed, changed everything here. So, right. so it was dramatic in that we use a new model we made good use of scarce resources, but, but most importantly, we changed the Vista uh, and the, the dreams of students yeah. that could, could never have left to go away to school. Now they right. didn't have
1: to. They could well, you, changed, you changed lives in the process. I'm curious. We talk about the, in uh, the origin of all of this being able to rely on a, uh, uh, your your what what had become your own tax base as a junior college for uh, facilities perhaps or operations as well, as well. but you uh, overlay on it uh, this university apparatus, a university operation, and oh, and over time you more than double the number of students. You t- as you said you take it from fifty acres to three hundred and fifty acres. What was the process whereby you changed the in essence, the access to funding, I mean, to acquire 300 acres, to build on the 300 acres, uh, what was the process in, in terms of accessing uh, you know, capital formation, uh, operating process, operating funds aside? I'm assuming the operating funds to a considerable degree began coming from the University of Texas or the state of Texas as a whole. I may be wrong about that, but uh, what was the process then for funding that sizable growth, now, again, taking this from historical base of a two-year junior college to what what was now growing burgeoning university.
2: The, the, the first thing we tackled was that whether students would have money to come to the university, right? Because you can build a business, but people don't have money to come to buy something at your business. It doesn't do any good. So we had established a scholarship endowment in the first year that we had, where we had raised a million dollars. We've gotten a $2 million match and that corpus grew separate from all other expenditures and and provided scholarships for students that they would earn themselves by taking the tougher courses in junior high and high school. If they made A's and B's in those courses, they would be earning their way into the college. They would bring Mm -hmm. us their Mm -hmm. earnings and we would transform them into tuition. So right. first, we had to make sure that people could afford to come to our school, right? Because right? you can right. build right. a school and have no one be able to come. So once we did that, that was, that was uh, actually year two uh, of the time when I was president. The first year, we passed the bond issue. The next year, we, we formed the scholarship endowment. And then we kind of said, OK, so now what? What's the next thing we can do? And that's when we started looking to a bigger partner. We needed revenue. We had already tapped out the local market in essence, right? So we needed to get money from somewhere else to build what we needed to build. That's why we went to the UT system. Now, UT system wasn't going to hand us a lot of money. We were not part of Mm. the permanent Mm. university fund uh, distribution in Texas, which is a um, huge fund that goes to fund many of the UT schools, but we were not included in that in in our arrangement yet. And it was too political. They didn't want to open it up. They, they feared some others would want to come at it. And so we simply stood in every line we could. So and Richards became governor and Richards was getting sued, as was the entire state of Texas, by MALDEF, Mexican-American Legal Education Fund, for mm-hmm. what was being claimed as discrimination uh, mm-hmm. on, on the southern part of Texas, southern mm-hmm. and all the way to El Paso. And they won that case against the state of Texas in district court. And so a lieutenant governor at the time and the governor got really, you know, kind of shaken by this all. And they called in the two chancellors and said, you boys better get down to South Texas and do something meaningful. (laughs) Are we going to, you know, we're not going to be in a good position here. So while the case was was being uh, sent to the Texas Supreme Court in that interim, they invented what they call the South Texas Border Initiative. Mm. And I got into that line. Mm. We were now a university. We got into, and so we started- and What to get year money. What
1: year would that have been?
2: That was, um, it was probably about 92, 93. So we were already a university, but we were a baby. We had, and uh, and so all of a sudden, there's money that starts to flow, not only to Brownsville, to all of the universities along the border and all the way to El Paso, so uh, it was very compelling evidence that there had been de facto discrimination. Uh, so, so that you could show that um, you know Texas A and M, that had very few people in its territory, had you know, ninety doctorates, and we had one in the Rio Grande Valley. So it was an extraordinary uh, case. However when it went to the Supreme Court of Texas, that they reversed it. They agreed on the facts of the case. They did not argue that, yes, there's been discrimination, yes, there's been no money going to South Texas, but you argued on the wrong basis. You said it was a constitutional right, and Texas only allows you to argue that for K through 12, not for higher ed. So they threw it out. Mm. But we got lucky because that spigot Right, had already had been, turned been turned on. Turned on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Ann Richards was for it. Our lieutenant governor was for it. So for the next ten years, when you ask where did you get money, I was in that South Texas Border Initiative line for right. universities.
1: Right, because right. we were
2: now a university. Right, right. So right. that that helped us tremendously.
1: Well, very clever, and uh, and uh, one I'm sure it was a. Uh, uh, in that period of time, transformative uh, for your new university. So,
2: well, we got we got money for academic programs. We got money for hiring faculty. We got money for setting up the library to support those academic programs. So, I mean, you know, it was extraordinary. We've never had that happened before. It was, it was a ten-year initiative to really build the universities on the border, and we were we were recipients of that.
0: Like a jack of all trades? Does this make you feel like you're less than your peers who are on the hunt to become a quote expert? Clifford Hudson, CEO of fast food chain Sonic for 23 years, imparts life and business lessons in his new book titled Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. If you'd like to learn Clifford's nine rules of thumb to finding success in life as a jack of all trades, just visit cliffordhudson.com. There, you'll be able to download the first chapter of this new book for free. That's cliffordhudson.com for the first chapter of Master of None today. Now, back to the interview.
1: Now, the, the phase that I'm. Curious about, and uh, this does jump ahead a little bit. The the two year junior college goes to university level. The university begins over a decade, getting a level of support that takes it to a different place altogether, and uh, one that's I'm sure a much richer resource than for your community and the broader university community. By the time we get to you know 2010, 2011, and there's some discussion. Uh, it sound like parallel discussion. Uh, I don't I don't know if there was a causal connection between the two, but some discussion about merger between uh, University of Texas Brownsville and and uh, University of Texas Pan America. As that was occurring, uh, also some discussion about probably, perhaps uh, to many people's surprise, the idea of Texas Southmost College disassociating with the university uh, when it had played such a role in allowing all this to be built. Well, let's let's talk about this in two ways and, and get your reaction. One is what this meant qualitatively, what I'm thinking about. There was a time back in 1991 where the resources and the the, the taxing capability, the bond issuance capability that, that Texas Southmost brought to the table was critical to your survival. And yet uh, 20 years later, as we're talking about separation, obviously the university of texas at brownsville had moved to a very different place where that original uh, bonding capacity taxation authority that texas southmost college had was no longer necessary for its survival i must be reading that correctly because the separation did occur so uh, two questions would be just the evolution of the university that occurred to begin looking at that merger with 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 uh, pan america And yet at the same time, moving to such a different place in a relatively short period of time, 20 years, to where the taxing capacity that had probably been critical in 1991 was not critical any longer. Perspectives on that? Observations?
2: Yes, I I think, um, you know, people would ask me, um, don't you get bored being in a job for so long? And I think my job changes every year, every almost, you know every month but and and so i'm responding to your evolution uh use of that word because we were chameleons in many ways we were whatever it took to feed this organization revenue uh from external sources to be able to build it right we knew how to make it or we knew what we would do with the money if we had it but what we were always trying to to evolve our our model to take advantage of the new opportunity. So South Texas Border Initiative with Ann Richard started, you know, we got in that line. So whatever it took to bring revenue, it was, it was complicated though. We were running against every traditional model in the state of Texas for how you fund community colleges. And we kept those revenue streams going because we were still a community college, right? And we wanted the revenue streams from universities in Texas. So they, the, the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board that, that, that looks at all of the revenue streams would always just have this terrible time with our, our books because they, they thought, wait a minute, they're mixing funds and, and, and this is strange and they don't fit neatly into a box. And these are the boxes and these, these guys are doing it all wrong. So, so Southern Association of Colleges and Schools, our accrediting agency, had the same problem. It took us four years of trying to get accredited by them as a partnership because mm. they, didn't, they couldn't accredit us as a community college because we were too different. They couldn't mm. accredit us as a university because we were too different. They no. had to create a new uh, box for us. And that was difficult. Mm. So it's not just you, that, you know, you're, fil- you're swimming upstream. And uh, as a matter of fact, when we started our partnership, I have to tell you, the community college presidents in the state of Texas testified against us it, and the state of Texas, because mm-hmm. they said I was ruining the model of of, um, of the community college and what it should be in Texas. So whenever you go against the grain right. in invention, we ran into um, a, a buzzsaw. But so we were chameleons taking advantage of whatever we could, every revenue stream to apply to our task. We knew what our task was. Bring opportunity, bring revenue. To this community so it's just a matter of okay what do we do need to look like now and can we can we continue to have credibility right because i had to go to the same senators and state reps every time but we looked a little different and they'd look at me like what are you doing now julia you know and so i'd have to make sure that i could show them that we had done what they wanted us to do with the what we had promised and we were ready to tackle now a new territory so We had changed a lot during those 20 years. The partnership that began had evolved. But the documents that had been initiated, that initiated it, the contracts, we had contracts and interagency contracts Mm. between the community college and the university. Mm. We were doing things that was not that were not anywhere in those contracts. So it was also time to update the contracts. And who understood all those evolutionary details only those of us who had been in that storyline all the way right, through.
1: Right. So right. it was
2: complicated. And if you were a, a newly elected community college trustee, I think it's reasonable to understand that they would have just been like, what are you doing? I don't understand. I I'm not sure I understand which co-mingling of funds, you know, all those terms that, and we were, of course we were co-mingling funds, but right. we were audited all the time and we knew we were okay but it was complicated yeah it was delicate uh in grov- in governance because we had a locally elected board of right. community college trustees
1: right? and I right. had
2: the UT regents and mm-hmm. so I would I would I would meet with a locally elected community college board every month just like every community college president does in the state of Texas and then I'd go up to the UT system and I was one of 15 Residents mm-hmm. in the U.T. Um, mm-hmm. constellation. So I was, you know, I was um, a comedian. living,
1: li- Living quite different worlds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, different. In, dif- uh, in different times. worlds. Yeah. And, yeah.
2: and I remember getting in trouble in both worlds, right? <laughs> so a chancellor would say, Juliet, you know, you were holding a bond election. Well, that was a Texas Southwest College bond election. Right. Way right. out of the purview of the university system. Right. and and he says did we win you know yeah (laughs) (laughs) most importantly yeah (laughs) so it it was tough and it was a tough model to explain Mm. wow it worked for the student it worked for the business model and because of the revenue streams but but it was a tough governance model
1: yeah yeah i bet so but it was the one that you had to work with. So um, it was one, that, one that, that provided the path for you. So how would you describe what are the uh, two or three key characteristics? And I'm thinking now, uh, well, whether it's quantitative or qualitative, but particularly qualitatively, how would you describe the college, the junior college that you came to run in 1986 versus the one that you uh, had built and, and when it became time- you chose to leave in 2014. What are the characteristics that you would describe that, um, that uh, uh, you find are most telling about the uh, institution that you developed, the institution you built, the programs that were present? I know as an example, one of the things that you're very proud of is the fact that by the time you left, um, University of Texas had, Brownsville had a medical school uh, which is fairly extraordinary to think about where it was in 1986 versus 2014. So, what are two or three things like that 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 you would say most meaningful to you as it as it came time to uh, depart your your longtime leadership position?
2: You know, I think uh, the you mentioned the medical school. We started out with a biomed program, um, uh, biomedical sciences. And we, we, we started to hire, when you're a university and you're a University of Texas school, that's a lot of cachet in the market for hiring faculty. And that's important, right? What, the moment we, be, we started to, to fly the flag of the University of Texas, the number of applications that I could get for a faculty member in biology, just uh, grew extraordinary. So all of a sudden, I could hire a different caliber of faculty member. And we had decided that we were going to be a university that was a little bit different. We weren't growing up to become UT Austin. It, it is what it is. Um, but we were going to become a university that looked at the population, which is a bilingual, biliterate population. And we wanted to educate that that strength to that strength. And so we said we want to produce engineers that are. Bilingual, biliterate. We want to produce lawyers who are bilingual, biliterate. Medical professionals mm-hmm. who are, bi- and so we looked south. We said our our universe. We are at the epicenter of the he- northern and hemis- and southern hemispheres. So we would hire people who were now in the U.S., but they came from Peru originally. They're hotshot professors somewhere in Massachusetts, in Wisconsin, and at UT other schools. But we hired them so they could do this work that they were doing, physics, uh, uh, biomedical sciences in both languages to people who who needed that uh, that expertise. So we became it was interesting. We became a a, a nest for uh, very brilliant professors who wanted to not only be professors of engineering, but be all that they were. When we hired a provost, he was a nuclear engineer. Uh, uh, we hired him as a as a dean first, and and I knew that I was lucky to get this guy. I mean, he had a PhD in nuclear engineering, and it was just brilliant. And mm. I said, "Why did you sign that contract?" I had to ask him finally because mm. I couldn't mm. pay him what he was making. I mm. had no, you know, nothing else to to give him. He said, "Because here I can be an engineer, but I can also be a Latino engineer, mm. and I miss being that other part of me." Mm. So we started to. He then started to recruit other people like him and then they would recruit other people like them. And so pretty soon we had a stellar faculty that were here on, uh, on their next uh, mission. Peace Corps mission is what we called it. We discovered we had lots of peace, former Peace Corps Mm. people here. And, and when we entered, we, we invited them to a little dinner one night and, and we said, why are you here? And they all kind of shook their, you know, scratched their head and said, I guess it's our next mission. Because you, you wanted, you needed to be, if you were here, you had made um, a decision that maybe wasn't a career smart decision on the traditional um, way. You had made it because you wanted to make a difference. You wanted to make a difference in the community. And to, and people needed you and your expertise here. So when you put that kind of a team together, then then anything can happen. So we did it in physics. We hired this you know, brilliant physicists uh, who came from, from uh, Argentina and got us our first $10 million NASA grant
1: in oh physics. Oh well, my.
2: okay, that works. Yeah,
1: it changes everything. <laughs> and
2: so then they started, you know, building this physics program that eventually now, I think has about 24 physicists in it. And we had mm, so much trouble my. getting that degree here. People yeah. didn't want us to do physics. They wanted mm. us to do ordinary stuff and they mm-hmm. thought not physics and Brownsville. but well, we mm-hmm. weren't thinking physics and Brownsville. physicists are worldwide
1: mm-hmm. you know they
2: think about things outside of this world like black holes so <laughs> they don't care where they are as long as they're with other smart people so they recruited others to this work we did it in biomedical sciences that became then the precursor for our medical school so we had brilliant Uh, a brilliant professor from Uruguay who was an MD and a PhD. And we hired him from Baylor medical school. Well, a few years ago, we would never have been able to hire someone from Baylor metal medical school. So, so, you know, you, you hire one brilliant guy and they help you hire the next 10 and that, and I didn't have to buy them. You know, they wrote grants to buy the next faculty member and they wrote grants to buy the next three. So building, Key programs with with a uh, with a provost that I uh, that we benefited from Jose Martin, who was the engineer. He understood science and he understood the strength that we needed, and we hired to that end and built very very strong programs in the, in uh, in premed and in physics. And then we had this great chess team that brought us a of notoriety because and because our our chess team was international. I mean we had we have kids at still to this day uh now the un- new university is at one the nation's number one mm. competitive chess team mm. but we had kids from Russia and from Uruguay and from Peru and from Mexico and from you know Kansas and China and so so in chess in physics in medicine language doesn't matter it's innovation it's what you're studying. Mm-hmm. Uh, national borders don't matter. Mm-hmm. You just want to work with the best scientist. You don't care where he's coming from or she's coming from. So we were, you know, we were, we had the strength of a strong provost who understood how to build a faculty and how to build programs that would benefit us uh, in the long run. And once you do that, you can do all the other stuff. The other stuff is easy, right? You build all the other programs to support. Well, really I, I
1: seem—I seem to recall that you uh, eventually developed with your physics program a relationship with with uh, SpaceX. If I have that recollection. Well, right.
2: actually, yes, we did. We did. SpaceX was looking for a place to set up its uh, launch site for rocket launches to Mars, mm. right? Mm. <laughs> mm. And mm. they were looking at Texas, and they were mm-hmm. looking at other three other states, mm-hmm. and we said. What our physics guys said and gals said, we need to get in that game. And I thought, mm-hmm. OK, mm-hmm. You know, well, mm-hmm. let me let me mm-hmm. learn the game and then we'll try it. We talked to the governor at the time of the state of Texas and and we said we want to be your Texas site and we want to try to attract SpaceX to mm-hmm. um, to Brownsville, which really means South um, Boca Chica Beach, which is the Gulf of Mexico, 25 miles south of us. And in our taxing district, by the way. And so um, we, uh, the governor said, OK. And so the governor gave us a little team to work with. So now we were in competition with Florida and South Carolina. They were looking for the southernmost uh, spot uh, close to the equator. And we met that criteria because when you launch a rocket, who knew? <laughs> you, need, uh, you need to be close to the equator because the physics of it says that you will have less drag on your, on your rocket. And you use less mm-hmm. fuel and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so we met that criteria. And then it was, you have to have money from the state of Texas. The state of Texas gave us some money. Uh, we went to UT System and we said, this would be really good for the whole system if if we got SpaceX and Brownsville and they gave us a little bit of money. And then we went locally and asked people here to support it. So, so, but I think that the having met all of those criteria, everybody else met them too, right? The other states. But I believe that what finally tilted it in our favor was, uh, were our students. Our students went to testify at the final hearing here in Brownsville. SpaceX guys were here to, to determine whether or not this was the community they wanted to start up in. And the, the, the Chamber of Commerce folks went, you know, the, the EDF folks went. And the last people to testify were our students, about mm. eight of them. And SpaceX was just they, the guys from SpaceX were just shocked. And mm. said, who are you? Where do you mm. come from? Mm. And our students said, well, we're astrophysics, ma- gravitational wave astronomy majors from UT Brownsville. And they said, what's UT Brownsville? I had no clue. So our students said, would you like to come to our campus, to our lab? And we had set up a lab that looked like Command Central, uh, you know, in uh, at the mm-hmm. Kennedy Center or something,
1: yeah. or at the mm-hmm.
2: Johnson Center. Johnson and, uh, Space Center. Mm-hmm. Johnson Space Center. And so mm-hmm. the physicists from SpaceX close the meeting down, and they, they go and meet our students on our campus. And for three hours, we had now super nerd to super nerd talking physics. <laughs> <laughs> None of us understood anything that was going on, but they understood each other. So we had the human capital. and. We had never had that to play before, and all of a sudden we had met all of the other criteria. Plus, we had the human capital because by that time we were producing uh, the in the in the in the nation. I think it's like we were the top third producer of mm. Latino physics majors.
1: Mm. Mm.
2: So we mm. we were just on the right trajectory
1: yeah. at the right well, time. And what a great measure of the qualitative uh, difference, the qualitative impact. Uh, yeah, your leadership has uh, made on the not just the institution but the community. In some ways, you know, as I've read about your path, Juliet. Not surprising then that as all that comes together, and your career closes in 2014 as president of the university, being named Fortune Magazine's World 50 Greatest Leaders, that must have been quite a quite a thrill to learn that as well. Though I think it's a a sign, an indication of the extraordinary change that you did bring about there, and the contribution to a community defined in many ways. You know, so uh, what a what an exceptional uh, impact, and an exceptional career. I'm fascinated by this innovation at all levels, uh, the the um, program piece, the community engagement, the funding piece, the funding of different sorts, uh, the vision to be able to pull this off. When you stepped into a the presidency of a, of a junior college that had been in place for uh, sixty years, and uh, the ability then to uh, innovate and elevate and evolve this into what it's become uh, really so extraordinary. I know I mentioned to you separately. I find it fascinating as well that in nineteen twenty six when the junior college was begun, it was called the Junior College of Rio Grande Valley, and once again now is University of Texas at Rio Grande Valley. So kind of a nice uh, circling up, uh, uh, not quite a hundred years later from its origin.
2: Well, if I might, Cliff, it also is, it's a story of defeat because we, along the way, you know, Maya Angelou says, uh, you will be defeated. You, you, will, you will experience defeats, but you will never be defeated. And, and so when the partnership was coming to an end, that was a defeat. It, that 20-year history had been wonderful. I mean, in many ways, right? I, I recounted some of them to you, but but it had been, I mean, our campus, if you were to see our campus, it is a beautiful campus. It looks like it's I've always your been campus. It's, I've seen your campus. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> there, there you go. That's right. That's right. Okay. So So, you know, there were lots of reasons to be proud of this, but now the community college trustees had decided to, to end the partnership. And the University of Texas Regents had said, let's go back to our traditional model. You know, that was good for the startup years. Let's go and build our own university. We can, we, we. And so it fell to me to have to unweave the partnership that we had woven together. And that was an extraordinarily difficult thing, heartbreaking to do in many ways. And I and didn't know if we were going to survive it, right? Because we had to unweave physical facilities, the physical nature of what we were. Money also had to be divided up, but the people had to be divided up, and that was the, the hardest part was to do, decide who who stays at the community college, who goes to the university, and 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 you know who are we to make those decisions? And you're dealing with people's lives and futures and vested interests and it that that was that that could have been our undoing, exactly, yes. what was extraordinary about it was that we found a way to build something again, now better than what we had had. If you looked at just the the loss of what we had, you might end the story there, but can you rise from the ashes, Phoenix, and build something better and <laughs> That's where we were fortunate with a chancellor uh, at the UT system who was actually from the border, Laredo, uh, a regent who had been from the valley, the chairman of the board of regents, who was a a valley person, uh, myself, uh, Pedro Reyes, who was executive vice chancellor for academic affairs. You know, when were we going to get valley people in charge of UT system Mm -hmm. in a way? So we said, okay, we we got to save this baby somehow, and that's where the the, the new and improved model grew from, mm-hmm. uh, that allowed us then to be PUF eligible, receive mm-hmm. permanent university funds for the first mm-hmm. time in over a hundred a mm-hmm. hundred years.
1: For for the listener, that that you 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 said that the PUF permanent university funds, so state state of Texas, uh, the big fund, the big source, so university level so but it but as you say, once again innovation uh, in that circumstance of hardship the pain the difficulty of of the possibility of separating from the original base that the junior college and and yet the innovation that the group applied really came to the point then of a a completely new university with a different level of resources so it can now fly on its own in an extraordinary way. So time will tell, but it's, I think that the time is only gonna, The, the story is going to tell is only going to be a one. way.
2: And, and so I, I guess the met the real message along the way is, you know, th- those defeats uh, can be the end of the story Yeah, or they can provide the seed for the next the uh, feed corn for the next uh, evolutionary phase. And at some cost to many, but great gain for the common good. We were able to abolish, imagine, abolish the university that you started, mm. <laughs> which is, I couldn't even say the word for a while. And, the, mm. and I kept just losing the word. And I, it just wouldn't, get, it wouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't come out of my mouth because you had to abolish UT Brownsville and abolish UT Pan-American in order to then form this new UT Rio Grande Valley. And we all knew it was the right thing to do. Could we pull it off? Would the legislature support it? Would the Senate support it? Would the governor support it? And so that was a long time and a, a harsh one. But, you know, the momentum was there and we had yeah. good people.
1: But in, in many ways, it was uh, in, in many ways, it was kind of the. Uh, uh, particularly as your own career as president was drawing to a close. It was uh, in some ways, perhaps an, an appropriate, not sure what the single word is, but uh, the amalgamation of all of this coming together. And uh, ironically, uh, the merger, you're just saying one university go away, another university go, to go, away, go away and they come together. Even the, the second university was the one where you began your teaching career. Yeah. So in in many ways, what an amazing uh, amalgamation of a set of experiences and, and community building over time, though difficult, though. Yeah, and you had to let go of much of what you built. In a way, that's kind of like the letting go of the leadership position and the career uh, anyway. The legacy that you built there, I, I know, will be an extraordinary one and and uh, It will be fun over time to see what that new University of Texas, the Rio Grande Valley, what that becomes, but I'm sure it's only going to be a good story. So Juliette, I really appreciate you taking time today to share your story with me and and with our listeners. It's been a delightful experience for for me, and I know it will be for our listeners as well. I wish you the continued best of luck with your teaching. We'll all uh, watch not only what else you may be achieving in your career, but we'll be watching with interest at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and see what what it becomes as well. But thanks for sharing your stories of uh, innovation, which as I said at the outset, I find just extraordinary in the setting in which you're operating. And uh, one of a great life story but one of a great institution story uh, as well. And I can't say thanks enough for sharing. So.
2: Now it's been wonderful to get reconnected with you. Good luck to you. And, and I look forward to reading your book and uh-huh. uh, thank you so much for your interest in our work here in, in deep South
1: Texas. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you can visit cliffordhudson.com to receive the first chapter of Clifford's new book, Master of None, right now. And one more thing before you go, would you leave a review of this podcast and let us know what you learned in today's conversation? And remember, the greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery, and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity.